Welcome to Centering Centers, a podcast that explores the work of centers of teaching and learning and the vision and insights of educational developers in higher education. I'm your host, Laura Becker, a faculty member and faculty fellow with ACERT, our Academic Center for Excellence in Research and Teaching at Hunter College, City University of New York. In each episode, I will be interviewing educational developers in a range of contexts as a way to contribute to the community of faculty developers by connecting us to one another and to the essential work we do. Thank you for listening. Welcome to episode seven. In this episode, I speak with Deandra Little, Assistant Provost and Director of the Center for the Advancement of Teaching and Learning at Elon University in North Carolina, along with David Green, who is the Director of the Center for Faculty Development at Seattle University in Washington State. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, so I'm so excited to meet David and Deandra, the team, and get your insights today, you know, and a little, learn a little about you and, and kind of how you got into working in educational development. Um, you have, you know, obviously come from your own different disciplinary areas and worked obviously to the level of being editors, um, supporting the scholarship in this field, as well as leading the work on your campuses. Um, so we'll just see where the conversation goes and um, maybe you will be surprised about something that you didn't know about each other. Um, I don't know. Um, but I'm just going to start with just kind of how you first got into this work, you know, um, probably, you know, if you're an English professor or a German scholar, you don't necessarily think about educational development and as a thing. So um, uh, either one of you want to just kind of give us a little bit of kind of the pathway that you think brought you to in, into this field of work. Sure, should I? Should yeah, I go ahead, Deandra. Yeah, um, and it's interesting because this is a question that David and I have been really interested in and talked about over the years is how pathways in and discipline, disciplinary backgrounds and how people come to it. But for me, it started in grad school um, as I was getting my PhD in, um, in literature. I worked as a teaching fellow at the um, teaching center at Vanderbilt where I was getting my PhD. And it was the time of the dissertation when everything feels so murky and you're in the middle of, you know, wrestling all the ideas together. And it was such a clear, clear work, like really focused on student learning. There was a team of 10 of us from all different disciplines. And it was really just fascinating to hear the, my colleague who was getting his PhD in electrical engineering talk about teaching and learning and recognizing, okay, some of those things I recognize and then some very different way of understanding how learning works and how teaching should work as a result. Um, and from that, I got really interested in the work of um, educational development and um, stayed in touch with the, with the staff there, went to some conferences, um, discovered POD, and the, the contrast between going to M the MLA as a um, grad student <laughs> and going to the pod <laughs> network conference as a grad student in terms of how welcoming people were right. and how excited they, they were to talk to me about it was just really stark difference. Um, and so then I, when I, when I was on the job market, I was looking both at 
English professor positions and teaching and learning center positions and ended up um, ended up going the teaching and learning center route um, pretty much from the beginning. I taught a couple of years full time and then um, was in a position where I was doing some teaching and primarily working at a center at the University of Virginia. Okay. The um, the Van Vanderbilt is definitely a, um, a breeding ground isn't the right word, but <laughs> it's a great uh, place to to be nurtured, you know, and get started, obviously, in, in this work. Um, do you do you teach courses now, like uh, on literature or anything like that? As And how do you feel like that keeps you connected in terms of the work that you do in as a, in, in educational development to still yeah. be teaching? Yeah, and I've I have taught the entire time, um, a, a course or two a year. So there's a yeah. substantial course reassignment with uh, with the work. But um, I think particularly now at Elon, um, it's an important piece of of staying real, so making sure the things I'm recommending to people aren't just good on paper, but are actually things I've tried, I've experimented with, um, can talk to them meaningfully about. Um, it gives me a I don't know a different kind of different kind of credibility, but also a different sense of trust in the ideas that I, that I, that I trust in the ideas I'm sharing with people, right? Um, yeah. It also helps me understand our students and how, yeah. and the kind of the institutional, you know, university culture and how those students are changing over the years. Um, yeah, especially now, this group, yeah. you know, your freshmen at Elon haven't been in a building, a lot of them for a year and a half, and, yeah. and we'll, we'll get to that. Great. So how about you, David? Did you know as early on as Deandra or how was, what was your pathway? Far, far from it. <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing like that at all. My, uh, my, first experiencing, my, my first experience of teaching was when I was doing my PhD and uh, um, a colleague in the German department was going on sabbatical and he just wanted somebody to cover one course for him. And it was an introductory German grammar class for so it's introductory meaning they've already done German for five years at, at high school, so or school. So um, and it was a course that I'd taken as an undergrad six years before and detested. It was <laughs> very very dull, and because there were two sections of it and the other was taught by somebody else, I couldn't make any changes because all the assignments were the same. So it was just this very unenjoyable experience. And I vowed at the end of it, I will never become a university professor. I just don't want to be teaching. I don't want anything to do with teaching. I don't mind doing the research, but not the teaching. Um, and then when I finished my PhD, a job came up in the same city where I was based in German. And I thought, oh, I should just try it. So, you know, give it a year, see how it goes. So, um, so I did. And then what was happening at the time, so this is late nineties, is that all pretty much at every university in the UK, all new professors needed to complete a year long program in learning and teaching in higher education in their first two years. And it was a contractual obligation. If you didn't do it, you basically were out of a job. So there's no tenure system, but it was kind of the closest thing in a way um, that, you know, you've got two years to get yes. this thing done. Um, so and I completely dismissed, I was such a, a disciplinary snob. I completely dismissed it as not proper research, not a proper discipline this higher education <laughs> stuff. But the people that ran it were fantastic. So a couple of mentors, Diana Eastcott, who's originally a sociologist and Bob Farmer, who was originally an engineer. Um, they just hooked me in completely. <laughs> so by the end of the year, it was like more, give me more. Um, 
And then with a bit of serendipity, the following year, the UK government gave all universities funding for learning and teaching projects of whatever sort. So each university made its own decision. And Diana and Bob said, well, let's run three year projects in all the colleges and schools. So we had an application. So I managed yeah. to, to get one of those for computer supported experiential learning in languages <laughs> and international business, bizarrely. Um, <laughs> So that then got me hooked on doing the research in the field and connecting the different dimensions that I hadn't really seen originally. Um, and then eventually they invited me to join them. So I was a chair for three years and then I joined educational development. First, just dipping my toe in the water three days a week um, and then moving fully there. And after four years of that, I moved to the US as a so primarily a faculty developer, but I continued to teach once a year. And I, so I teach in international studies here. Yeah, I, um, I, I, let me just ask now, as, as it's come up, um, you know, a lot of the listeners here are in the U.S. and are familiar with POD, but less familiar with what educational developers do or what kind of roles exist um, in other parts of the world. And, and obviously, there's international organization of educational developers, but perhaps you could give us a I and mean, it was probably very broad brushed, but um, maybe even just the UK compared to the USA in terms of these roles, are they as commonly found as we find here? Um, what's your sense of this? Is it something that you see expanding globally as sort of a type of position in higher ed? Uh, I, obviously higher ed is quite different in different parts of the world, but it would just be, I think, interesting to ask you that now. Yeah. So the, um... There is, as you say, there is an international organization. So the POD network belongs to the International Consortium of Educational Development. So I said, conference next year in Denmark, I hope people can go. Yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, the UK member of I said is CEDA, the Staff and Educational Development Association. And the word okay. staff in the UK means all employees. So, so there isn't a faculty staff divide the way that we have linguistically in the US. Yes. But you're either academic staff or non-academic or whatever it might be, but everybody's staff. Um, very similar feel to pod other than it being typical well when i was there and i've been here 15 years now so it's, it's been a while but it, it was kind of around 150 people so much much smaller conferences than pod because it's a yes. small country yes um, but a similar very very supportive field where everything is about sharing and learning from one another rather than the the kind of competitive environment i experienced in german studies like deandre did in the, at the mla um mm. So similar, but the, the thing that's really different, Laura, I think is, is this whole idea that, that people have, new faculty have to participate in programs <laughs> because that just changes the game entirely. So, and, and they're in most universities, they were at least accredited at master's level. So I ended up doing a master's in education and professional development. You didn't have to do the whole thing. You didn't have to do the main, the main piece, uh, like the first third of a master's. Um, and that just changes the narrative in departments and colleges because people are talking about the way students are learning with different vocabulary. They have a different understanding of what goes on. So the ways that CEDA was operating were they just felt very different because the, the context was so supportive of us being able to do that work. Mm. Uh, rather than here where sometimes I feel like, you know, we've, we've got pockets where there's a ton of support and other areas where it's like, I, we don't really know what to do with educational development. So mm -hmm. it's kind of not necessarily sidelined, but still a curiosity huh. in some institutions. Do, do you see it as some, uh, the kind of thing that is expanding now because of 
because of the, the global pandemic that more universities perhaps internationally are are looking to how we teach more than just the what we teach or is that not quite happening yet <laughs> so I, I think that was happening a lot earlier in a lot of countries so at the same time that the uk had its initiatives going on australia and new zealand were doing the same kinds of things mm -hmm. we see it, it um, all across continental europe uh, South Africa, um, their movement came out of the apartheid movement. And mm -hmm. so academic development, they call it, um, is uh, connected there and has been a longstanding field. And Deandra, I don't know if you want to chip in with any other pieces, but so it, it, it doesn't feel like the, the pandemic has, it's, it's changed some of what we're doing, but they're around the world, but those fields were already well established in some countries. Yeah, I, I'd agree. I'd just say, I mean, even more, more recently than those, South, South America, several South American countries are having burgeoning networks mm. um, and South Asian and East Asian countries as well. Um, yeah, okay, interesting. I mean, my area is, um, my field is, is uh, TESOL, you know, teaching English to speakers of other languages. I work in a school of education and I work a lot, obviously, because of my field with people all around the world and um, it's this kind of role um, of you know someone who's really there to promote professional learning I feel like it comes a lot from our k-12 environments here and has kind of pushed up into higher ed and because there's still quite a bit of directive authoritative approaches to teacher development in a lot of parts of the world um, it's not necessarily, um, I think, this, you could see where there's some room for potentially for growth um, in other institutions globally. So it'd be really neat to, after we talk today, if you have some people in different parts of the world that you think would be good to talk to for this podcast, you know, please send me their names because I think one of the interesting things about this podcast is um, people have been writing to me to say, you know, I know some of these names, but now just hearing people talk, it, it, you, we become a little more connected, a little more humanized, and it can be quite siloed, um, even though there is a network and there is a listserv and there is a conference. Um, a lot of people are at, you know, centers of one and, uh, or very small, and, and it can be challenging but you know that all these other institutions are, are challenged in the same ways. You know, how do you get professors who never show up to these events to, to, to participate? You know, how do you, how do you really assess the impact of some of the activities that happen in the center? Um, how do you elevate the stature of the center in your institution? How do you work with these other groups that also support student learning? Um, you know, how do you, as you were saying, Deandra, how do you keep keep it real? You know, how do you as a center director keep evolving with your own skills? Um, so this, obviously this pandemic time has been very intensive for um, people learning to do online stuff that they maybe didn't wanna do and maybe now never wanna do it again. Um, but now we're kind of in this, we're back, but a lot of people don't want to come back. And what, what are some things that you're seeing now that you think um, are potential um, 
I don't know, it could be just areas, topics, issues that your centers might be involved with now in this new sort of transition time where maybe a lot more faculty did kind of emerge in the last year because they kind of had to. And they also learned a lot of tech tools. How, how do you kind of use that tide of energy um, moving now into this academic year? Anything that kind of comes to mind with that? I'll start with you, Deandra. Yeah, in fact, we just had a session today. Um, we, we do um, speed teaching sessions. So we invite okay. three to four faculty and often it's a round table and other faculty participants kind of move from table to table. So it's a, it's a way to hear in a really targeted way, an idea from okay. a number of different folks, um, a different colleagues. Um, Are you doing that in person? Well, typically, yes. yes. Um, last year and this year we're, so last year we did all of our events on virtually yeah. and this year we're doing a mix because we are, I mean, we've been on campus, but we're trying to, and we are highly vaccinated campus, but we're trying to think like, how do we help mitigate risk or help other people make choices that help mitigate their own risk for people who live with immunocompromised individuals or have children yes. who can't be vaccinated, right? So we're, we're trying to do a combination of things so um, people can choose how to access it. Um, but we did one today and it was called, um, one of my colleagues came up with it. Um, it's called Pedagogical Sil Silver Linings, the best ideas from the worst year of teaching ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, um, and what the focus was is three different people talking about tools that they used that they would continue to use and why, um, even in a fully face-to-face -face environment, you know, two years from now, um, which then got them talking about the, the the affordances of those tools and how they supported specific kinds of learning. Yeah. Um, one faculty, for example, short version, one faculty yeah. member talked about using hypothesis, a social annotation tool in a text dependent course for really getting students to learn textual analysis and some you know, kind of quantitative um, coding in a way that she could see what they were doing and intervene yeah, in different yeah. ways than, than, than she might have before in, um, in yeah. the classroom. So as one example. Um, and so I think I'm mean, have kind of two ideas. One is, I think one of the things we're doing is having conversations with people about the whys mm -hmm. of the hows that they learned last year. Like right. why do you wanna continue <laughs> using that and how does that support the kind of disciplinary thinking or habits of mind? Um, that you are um, continuing after, yeah. After you know, afterward. Um, Hypothesis is a great example of that because a lot of faculty, you know, were asking students to do this like intensive type reading, close reading, but there there was no tool to see it. It's like kind of making thinking visible a bit, and then it can become more collaborative. It's sort of you know that. Um, that SAMR model, the, the Punta Dura, you know, like from substitution to transformation. I mean, this yeah. is a tool. It's not just a substitute for highlighting text. It actually transforms the task altogether. Um, and it can be used, as you said, in, you know, what we call asynchronous is just homework, people. It's like the yeah. time in between you meet <laughs> is asynchronous. So you could use things, tools like that. That's a great example. So yeah. in terms, so one area is kind of you're thinking the whys of the hows 
-hmm. like why now what which tools would we keep and why that we kind of learned how to use and which ones now we wouldn't necessarily use anymore um that sounds like a great conversation yeah and related to that and that sort of kind of a two-in-one answer for the second one was is what did we learn last year about what we were assuming students were getting that they actually weren't like what kinds of things (laughs) were uncovered both in terms of student learning but also in terms of student thriving or well-being that we might I mean that one thing I guess that has been a positive outcome of the of the past couple of years is that we're I'm hearing more colleagues at institutions across the U.S. talk about the humanness of students in a different way the really holistic view and along with that comes more, I think, more attention to, well, I always assumed they were doing the reading, or I always assumed they had access or that they understood, and more attention to transparency. And so I think another conversation we're having, which connects to mm-hmm. diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, is thinking about transparency and accessibility, but also why aren't students getting some of the things that we thought they were? And what have we learned about what they, what else they might need? or what other kinds of explanation or modes of expression, right? They might need to represent what they're learning. Um, so yeah. it's kind of opened up the space here for those conversations in a different way, more broadly. It's, yeah, it's really, um, it's sort of cracked open this thing. It's, it, it sort of pushed everything beyond, you know, here's how I do this in my course, come grab an idea to, to really um, what we hope for, I think, in faculty development, which is much more um, reflective practice overall. Um, David, what about you? What what are you seeing in terms of now, like a sort of a transitional pandemic or whatever you want to call it? Um, This this year kind of sort of in person, sort of not. And in terms of the, the programming you're doing or in terms of like what the faculty are talking about and how you see um, these issues coming up now. Yeah, so uh, some connections with what Deandra was saying, and then a, a few things that may be slightly different, I think. Um, and I should add, our quarter started yesterday. Uh, <laughs> so it's early days. Fresh, our, okay. Our announcement about events just went out this morning. For this okay. Quarter. So, um, yeah, and and I'm at a, um, a Jesuit university as well. So the, the holistic piece that Deandra was talking about really resonates for, for us at, at Seattle U. Um, so the, the Jesuits have this idea of cura personalis, so care for the whole person. Mm-hmm. And our center is uh, kind of takes that model and applies it to faculty. So we it's a holistic faculty development center looking at learning and teaching, research practice, and professional development. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're also trying to model what we hope happens for our students in the classroom. So a lot of our emphasis is, is, has been thinking about what are, what are the equity issues for our students? How are, they, how are they doing? How's their mental health? And how are our course designs and assignment designs affecting their mental health in ways that we haven't noticed before? It was there, but it feels like the, you know, the pandemic has really magnified that. And as people are now coming back to classrooms like, like Elon, we're a highly vaccinated campus, well, about the 95% at the moment. Um, so primarily we're in person, but there's still a lot of nervousness around that and helping, helping everybody adjust has been a, a big component of what we're planning. And we're doing things on areas like um, trauma-informed pedagogy, mm-hmm. trying to help people think through what, what does this look like and how can, how can we take those caring practices that we really, that we really worked on in the last 18 months and, and apply those now that we're back in person. 
to support students in the transition yes. to higher ed. Yes. The, um, in terms of um, the physical, like uh, I think we're similar in that we're also, you know, mostly vaccinated, um, but not all the classes are back on campus. There's, there's classes that um, were already somewhat hybrid and now they're maybe they're fully remote or hybrid. I think we have 30% in person, 30% hybrid and um, like, I guess that means 40, about 40% all remote um, because they're, you know, we're in an urban campus and um, there are a lot of faculty who don't feel comfortable coming back in to teach. There are a lot of students who um, are not comfortable coming in or have religious exemptions and we need to offer these options. And so it's becoming, um, you know, I think for uh, this idea of like the high flex classroom. So you might have this in person, but you have to still bring in people who aren't there, which that's something completely new for faculty. I'm just curious for you all, is that something that is happening on your campuses at all, a high flex or what are your thoughts on that? I'm relieved to say it's not because everybody I've spoken to who's doing it seems to have the impression that they're actually teaching every course twice. Um, huh. And, and we're already seeing, you know, faculty bandwidth, you know, in dealing with a, a regular class in a pandemic is really, really hard. Um, and I, I think faculty would balk at it, but, um, but primarily our classes are, are in person. Yes. But, uh, but that's not a line that we've taken, um, I'm relieved to say, but I think- you, Got it. You've tried it, <laughs> haven't you? Yeah, we, that was our, um, that was our last year. So last year we had a, mix of mm -hmm. I'd say the bulk of classes were a high flex model um, just because of space yeah. um, and then there were a smaller number of fully in person everyone is in the room socially mm -hmm. distanced or remote um, and this year we are all in person and it is up to individual faculty to determine how to handle quarantine or student illnesses sort of that, that um yes for that so they got some experience doing it last year so that if that they do have a student or two who wants to zoom in they kind of accommodate mm -hmm. how has that been because i know like david's reaction is how most faculty are, feel you know about it um whereas k-12 teachers you know hundreds and thousands of them did that every day um so how in terms of that accessibility and um accommodating how does that work deandra did you see with the faculty being able to kind of get comfortable with kind of hosting a zoom while they're teaching in person or like just a couple thoughts on that i'm curious since i think a lot of campuses are doing that yeah and i'd say what one of the reasons we have where we have this commitment to the in person this year is what we heard last year from faculty. Well, I, I taught it too. I taught a high flex during our short term immersive semester mm -hmm. um, in a room that only held half of students at any one time, right? Um, and so I would I would agree. But the what we kept hearing from faculty was one or the other modality. Mm -hmm was possible either the everyone is in the room one person might be remote but majority mm -hmm. in the room or everyone online on zoom syn yeah. synchronously that seemed doable and that seemed 
best to mirror, to be most effective in terms of helping support learning and the learning outcomes for the course. I think no one that I've talked spoken with found high flex. I'm, I'm speaking absolutely. There were probably a few people, you know, who found who found it doable, but most people found like just the divided attention mm-hmm. meant that they didn't feel like they were, um, yeah, being as effective. And, and this year, interestingly, um, as we saw a few student cases early in the term, yeah. And online on social media, as, as faculty were talking to each other, people who taught fully remotely last year were saying, I think I'm going to try the high flex model. That's how I'm going to adapt. And people who taught high flex last year said, no, never. It was the worst thing ever. I will never, you know, return. And, yeah. then, and then there was some back and forth about why, but um, so I'm going on about it too long, but yeah. Not it, at all. I, I, I um, I'm really interested in it because um, I think, I think it, that split attention it's it's a real multitasking type of role I'm teaching a class that way right now Um, but again I was a k-12 teacher so I can handle it Um, but you have to kind of wonder I guess like as the boundaries sort of become um, less fixed on who can attend your college. And like you were saying, something's going on in their lives and they want to not miss a session, but they're going to be in another part of the world during those couple of weeks. Or I wonder if, so I'm going to kind of go to the question of like trends that you kind of predict um, in terms of, as you said, really, more than a focus on student learning, but that holistic focus and and a kind of, again, a, a student driven type of approach more than necessarily what faculty prefer. Um, and I think HyFlex kind of figures in that because as you said, you know, now everyone can turn on a Zoom and a student can reasonably say, I, like you said, maybe I'm quarantining, but I don't want to miss access to my course. Um, the expectations on faculty, how, so that is just one example, but that or anything else, do you kind of predict, you know, in the next few years that centers are going to be focusing on um, in terms of their agenda, their topics? Obviously, we're talking about um Diversity, equity, inclusion is a big one. Um, I do think that relates to high flex um, uh, quite a bit, actually. Uh, you know, things like, um, and I'm not sure how many you have at your institutions. We have a lot of adjunct faculty um, where we are. So, how do you support, as you were saying, David, it's not just student well-being but your faculty well-being and faculty a lot of them are being contingent faculty and and or older or having very young children like you said um all kinds of things so any trends that you kind of see maybe they kind of came out of the pandemic maybe they were just gonna happen anyway based on some of these other things like thinking about students um in terms of the you know the social emotional pieces um other things but David, one, yeah, I find trends really hard to gauge because you know it's so easy to get those wrong, isn't it? Or to or to amplify your own experiences and and think this is happening everywhere and it may not be. I, yeah. I do think that the holistic view is is going to be a way forward for us and and bringing the bring the 
the human into the classroom much more. Um, I, I'm hoping that's one that doesn't go away again um, post-pandemic. Um, yeah. Because, because I think, I don't know, I, I feel like in this last year, everybody's been able to offer one another more grace um, mm. from, all, you know, from all, all directions. Um, and that has been one of the few silver linings for a lot of faculty is that actually my relationship with my students is, is different and we under, understand one another in a different way than we used to. So I, I hope we can hold on to that. Hmm. I'm not sure about the, the kind of the idea of like the uh, all, all formats, all times mm-hmm. model. And it may, be, it may be centered around what students want, but, but does, it help, does it work for learning? And mm-hmm. I'm, I hope that we go in the direction of thinking about learning centered modalities and approaches which might mean okay we have we offer the same course in different modalities but it'll be it's not going to be a a blend of all of them at the same time and having faculty with divided attentions in the class so Mm. maybe maybe that's one way to help um, meet students needs and meet them where they are Um, certainly diversity equity and inclusion and anti-racist pedagogy i think Mm -hmm. that's that's definitely an area that um Pod's already moving into uh, and doing some exciting work in, and and I, you know, that's certainly going to be a focus for us, partnering with other areas on campus. I I want to hear Deandra because she probably has her trends in uh, top of mind, and then I just want to go back and um, ask you a little more about some of them uh, as we put them out on the table. So, um, I heard you talk about the anti-racist pedagogy, um, continuing to perhaps have research on student learning in, in regards to these different modalities and, and, and preserving that more humanistic approach, um, David, as some things as ways forward. Deandra, what about you? What does yeah, Elon I mean, predict? I would, I would echo um, what David is saying, because we're also seeing that. We're yeah. also, and we're seeing a huge interest in ungrading and alternative forms mm-hmm. of grading um, yeah. connected to equity questions also connected to thinking about um, more of a focus on learning and less of a focus on performance or that attention to to, to grades. Um, We had a lot of conversation about teaching for equity and inclusion and anti-racist pedagogy and and kind of campus-wide conversations about how are we baking that into evaluation systems or systems of accountability so that we might all be um, looking at that and moving forward. Um, yeah. And I'd say another, another. Well, so it's another trend for us. I mean, to David's point about- Yeah. It's about where I'm sitting or- Sure. You guys more broadly, um, we're really um, talking a lot about uh, mentoring, mm-hmm. um, what mentoring looks like, um, what kind of conditions promote deeper or transformative mentoring relationships. Um, and I think some of those have been heightened by the past couple of years in thinking about um, yeah. what does mentoring look like if it's not we're working side by side right. know, or in the, in the library, or, but we're, we're figuring out how to do it in different ways. Um, yeah, different absolutely. Um, and Deandra, are you talking about mentoring of students or mentoring of faculty? With, oh, or yeah. combination? I guess both. I mean, I, I was thinking of mentoring students because that's a conversation we're having on our campus. Um, 
and thinking about, but it's also, I think about mentoring faculty, I, I, I think also for developers. I do think, uh, I don't know if I'd call it a trend or a reality that I think we need to figure out is if we are taking a holistic approach, what does this mean in the time? What is the phrase? The time of the great resignation, right? As people are rethinking their relationship to work, particularly within higher ed, where the assumption has always been more of a vocational mm-hmm. orientation, right? Or that you're giving your all to the work, you're always on. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious how people are going to come back and renegotiate their relationship to work and to academia during a post-pandemic. We're already seeing it. And that is perhaps healthy, right? That is perhaps a way to think about mental health and a holistic approach to to work and to colleagues. But it also is going to mean, I think, that we need to be having some conversations about what that looks like and what that means um, for the model. That is really interesting because um, when you first started talking about David sort of like we were you know it's always a pendulum swinging and as you said when you're in it you don't see really where you are but we can see you know a heavy focus on accountability and standardization is giving way to by force you know sort of back to a humanistic kind of approach and yet we're feeling more fragmented than ever mm-hmm. you know I think in a way although like you're saying we're thinking about the challenges that students have, and in some cases, institutions are thinking about faculty challenges as well. Um, we're feeling very disconnected to each other because we are removed. And going to Deandra's point, how does it? How do we rebuild um, when nobody wants to come to campus anymore? You know, now it's so so much easier to have those good old department meetings, you know, and now I can at least text my friends uh, in the meeting, <laughs> you know, um, those are the um, kind of the, I guess those um, relationship building spaces for good or bad, and we don't have them as much. Yeah. Um, how do centers kind of also adjust to that, both wanting to take a kind of, um, to take stock of the fact that, yes, we are kind of coming into more of a work-life balance. We started our semester, um, we start right before Labor Day here, and we only started this week with our programming, and we had really low attendance. Um, And I kind of think that's going to happen. As part of the, I am, probably have innovation fatigue and I'm also trying to like as you said in many places that are sort of corporate workplaces people are saying I'm not coming in anymore I'm staying home or this or that um even though it was held you know remotely people are like do I really need to take that time out of the day to do this anymore um so and just any thoughts on that kind of balancing a very disconnected time with things like mentoring, mentoring of each other as faculty or mentoring students or building that um, sense of, of community. Yeah, well, so at least for, for us at Seattle U, last year where everything was done remotely, we ended up working with 60, I think it was 62% of all faculty on campus, which was 
whereas the year before it was 50. Mm-hmm. And I'm full time and my two colleagues are half time in the center and half in their academic departments. So we're not a big area. <laughs> but um, yeah. so we're seeing a greater demand for events and time together, provided it's with purpose. Mm-hmm. So it and it doesn't necessarily what our experience has been, it doesn't necessarily have to be brand new stuff the whole time. It could be yeah. let's continue these conversations um, that we were already starting and dig deeper on them. Um, we also try to do some straightforward community building events of just like, okay, it's a it's a virtual coffee shop. You know, mm-hmm. just drop in, we chat about anything. Nobody wanted to go. No, it's like no. No, there's not a it's so it needed to have a purpose, but people really just wanted to chat at the same time. So it's getting that balance. <laughs> building a sense of belonging and community for the faculty and then hopefully them doing the same with their students um, with something to do but not not being overtaxing Mm -hmm. (laughs) a bit of a needle to thread and we're doing everything we're continuing to do everything this quarter remotely as well which we think has really helped it's helped a lot of faculty be able to fit things in rather than when it was on campus it's a funny thing it's a it's a it is a funny uh, I don't know an irony or something but mm-hmm. you get more people but do you feel as connected you know it's, so it's like we're open you're opening up hey now we have it on zoom it's easier and you get more people attending but it's a strongly transactional you know if, if I'm not going to get something out of it am I going to come on a zoom um, at least we had the real bad sandwiches and the lousy, you know, chips, like someone would show up, but um, we don't have our lousy wrap sandwiches anymore to offer anyone. Um, Deandra, what do you think about this, like a sense of disconnect? And, and a lot of it is, as you said, is so geographic and particular. What are the possibilities and the practicalities? We're in very different kinds of physical settings. Um, and, and that has a big influence. Um, but um, obviously Seattle is a major city as well. So, you know, just things like you, you're, we're, I think we are really thinking through like, how long would it take me really to get to campus? Is this thing worth it to be there? Being that also, like you said, it's still sort of a pandemic. And do I really need to be out and about over there um, or not? Um, so Jander, what do you think in terms of how do we reconnect a faculty to one another and to centers what's their what centers what are centers potential or role here to um are we the place to do this is there any other place that it's happening other than within like let's say department meetings yeah i um i'd start by kind of agreeing with david like what we found over the past year is that sessions that had a very clear purpose but we're then loosely structured. So not heavily PowerPoint. Let me talk you through a framework yeah. that will apply more. Here's a question. Let's think about some research quotes and then talk about yeah. it. Um, we're, we're much more well-attended. We, we tried some things called teaching triages that had a topic, but not a hook, just more of come if you want to talk about collaborative learning and no one came or one person would show up. It was more like a off targeted office hours um, in that sense. Um, but what we did find is we have a we have a campus tradition here of having campus conversations. Mm-hmm. So one Friday a month for an hour before our full faculty meeting, which still meets, our faculty senate um, still meets with yes. the full faculty. Um, we have an hour and um, those were all virtual and they were really well attended. 
And we, working with some colleagues, for some of them I was co-facilitating, like we really tried to think through what are meaningful questions we can have people talking through in breakout rooms. Yeah. Um, we did one at the, the end where we were asking people to kind of process the year um, and think about it. And I, I think about some of the sessions that y'all have offered, David, um, over the past year, like yeah. the the one you did with the ombudsman on the the book, the age of overwhelm, like the, yeah. the sessions that we had, they were asking, they were helping people process feelings of burnout or some of their emotions that were bound up in the things they were doing, you know, in the classroom or working with students on have been well received. Um, I think, mm-hmm. and that's been part of helping build community, but it's also been helping people feel seen mm-hmm. and heard in a way. Um, yeah. And, and as I'm saying this out loud, it's making me think like this year we've switched back into more here are the topics that we know that you want to talk about because you've mentioned it in your, you know, in like conversations. Yeah. But I think we should be doing more of the how are we helping people build community sessions, too. So this is helpful for me to say. Out loud yeah. as we're talking. Well, that's what I that's what I love about these conversations. Um, center center people are just amazing. And we we're just having conversations is how you evolve and and refine and notice even things that you hadn't quite put a finger on. Um, David, did you want to add that? Yeah, to, that? It, um, to the Anders point, um, it's one of the things that we did. We've been doing this a lot, but much more last year was collaborating with other parts of campus mm-hmm. to put events on that are very tailored. So we worked a great deal with our Center for Jesuit Education that supports faculty and staff on understanding what it means to be at a Jesuit university. So we, we run an Ignatian pedagogy or three mm. Ignatian pedagogy series with them looking at different parts of the Jesuit educational tradition, which luckily aligns perfectly with education research. Yes. Um, and it's 450 <laughs> years old. Um, so we work with them a lot um, with our Office of Diversity and Inclusion and with our faculty ombudsperson where we'll we'll talk uh, about, okay, what patterns are we seeing? What can we do? So things like the age of overwhelm as a reading group or nonviolent communication. We did a lot of work on that in the last year and a half, as we were seeing people having greater difficulty communicating in online spaces. So the the relationships that pre-existed were breaking down. So how do we help uh, change those? Um, So those partnerships have really made a big difference. Mm -hmm. I, 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 don't want to end on this note, but I just want to kind of throw out a challenge, you know, with a lot of the focus um, on anti-racist pedagogy, critical race theory, culturally responsive teaching, etc. You know, there's been a swell of pushback in K-12, you know, across the U.S. Um, against any kind of teaching that seems to have discussed race at all therefore is racist um, and this sort of thing. And then you've probably read um, about districts that are firing you know, principals and, and putting teachers on the line. And you know, I wonder, um, I mean, if anything is about anti-racist critical race, I mean, Hunter College is right in the center of it. So we, we're right there. Um, we teach, we preach to the converted though, um, where, we, where we are in New York City. Um, but I, I'm curious if that is on the horizon for um, not so much faculty pushing back, although there is some, I'm sure, depending where people are, um, but among student body, depending on where people are. And even if it's just any thoughts on 
potentially a need for further support for people who do faculty development on, you know, being able to have those critical conversations about race is not something that just comes naturally. Um, it takes a lot of training and I would say probably um, most, most people in, in education development wouldn't have had that training necessarily. Um, anything around that that you see as not simply, um, you know, uh, we've changed, we decolonized the syllabus. Okay, here we go. Now we, we've, we've done it. Uh, how, how do you see this as potentially could be quite fraught? Um, and just so that we also are inclusive of lots of different kinds of institutions in the US in lots of settings that are not necessarily politically aligned with the Northwest, the Northeast, and North Carolina, um, North Carolina cities. So I'm curious about that. Any thoughts? Again, it's a little bit complex, sort of, I'm not sure exactly what I'm asking, but I guess just anything that you think from your, you know, so many years of experience and also internationally, um, how does something like this that is, um, very challenging to people, to faculty, get brought in and in a way that people don't feel that um, it's something that is being imposed on them or on students, that kind of thing. We're, we're having a lot of conversations about that now. I mean, both last year, before the election, we were talking about like, how do you facilitate civil discourse in your yeah. class in polarized times? And I think that theme continues post-election. Yeah. Um, and we've been collaborating with partners across campus to think about that, whether that's in with colleagues in political science around um, political discourse or politicized topics or yeah. um, colleague in our office of um, inclusive excellence, education and development. Um, and thinking about facilitation. So I guess I'm, I'm, I'm talking myself around yeah. to say like the thing that we've been focusing on and that I too like am committed to try yes. to get better at is um, thinking about facilitation. Like how are we facilitating conversations and how are we creating spaces where they're actually dialogue and not yeah. debate or tweet war or what, what you know whatever yeah. level of not hearing each other happens um, yeah yeah and the the thing we're hearing too from colleagues is they want more space to practice like they understand the framework and the ideas and it's pretty easy to map out on a handout well here are the steps one takes in order to have yeah. a yeah discussion that may be highly contentious and then you're in the classroom yeah. and someone says something and you think Oh dear God, dear Lord! Like, how would I respond? <laughs> yeah. You know, and um, yeah. And so we we've been trying to figure out how do we create practice spaces so that people are actually thinking like, what words do I use in this moment, and how do I move to a space where I'm facilitating, and and mm -hmm. without yeah, I don't even know how to finish that sentence, but to move to a space where yeah. I'm facilitating and really promoting dialogue without making it a space where anything goes yeah. right or where someone can say anything without right. consequence or unpacking or thinking about what are the what yeah. are the assumptions and evidence behind that um i've been thinking a lot lately too about some of the premises academia is based on right that we should be objective and some of the things i learned early on thinking about civil 
creating a space for dialogue in the literature classroom, right? Is that I should depersonalize and should yes. diffuse and take the emotion out no of it. Eyes. More, <laughs> no eyes. And then like everything I'm reading now, I'm realizing, oh, and what I did was then create a space for white people to talk to each other right. in a way that is promoted by the Western, you know, like yes. Western thought rather than thinking about, well, we are human. How do we bring emotion? I mean, there are emotions attached. There are experiences attached to some of these statements. So how do we create a space recognizing yeah. that that is actually also a part of learning and engagement? So that was a long answer. It's just that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently too. I think it's, um, it, there's no easy answers for the, that this topic. Um, what, what would you say, David? The Jesuits always have the answer. Now, by the way, I'm a big Jesuit fan because my mom was a librarian at Boston College and she's in, um, she's in Alpha Sigma Nu. She's very proud of that. And my husband went to Fordham. So I get a lot of pro-Jesuit talk. So I am all about the Jesuits. So I'm sure they have an answer to this. So lay it on us. Or David Green has an answer. I, I, I don't think they do have an answer. But they, but they, you know, what I like, one of the things I really appreciate about being at a Jesuit university is this is a conversation that is meant to happen. We are not doing our job if that, if a conversation around race in the US is not happening on campus. Mm -hmm. So I love that that's a frame that we can be thinking about all the time. So in our new faculty institute uh, a couple of weeks back, for all the new full-time folks, um, we, we did a whole session thinking about uh, some of this and also with with the with the kind of proviso that one of our goals is to fail forward mm -hmm. um, which we heard from our um office of diversity and inclusion is one of the one of their principles um and that we are bound to make mistakes and those of us who identify as white and don't have much practice talking about race in particular are going to fail the most and we'll have to you know try and let go of some of our academic perfectionism as deandra says is part of that Western mm -hmm. culture that we've we've uh, been acculturated into um and one of the things that we used this year for the first time my my colleague holly ferraro put us onto this article from daryl wing sue and a number of colleagues called disarming racial microaggressions it's from 2019 mm -hmm. i just pulled it up um mm -hmm. but what's really nice about it is that it actually has a full framework for people because i think one of the things we've noticed is People just feeling, even when you've done that practice, as Deandra says, feeling frozen in the moment and thinking, I, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm meant to do in this case. And so helping people think through, first of all, you can take a breather like, and actually say to students, I'm just going to need a minute. I want you to do a free write for 60 <laughs> seconds on, you know, whatever it is, just yes. to, to get your thoughts together. But then it, um, it asks you to think about, well, what's your, what's your purpose? Is, do you want to, in what ways do you want to disarm the microaggression or do you want to educate the offender or, you know, mm -hmm. you know what, what is it you're trying to achieve? Make something visible that's currently an undercurrent, um, all that kind of thing. And then gives you some ideas. The, the actual examples, we didn't use at all because we're not a fan of them. Um, but, but the framework we thought was really helpful and we had people thinking through that. But that's, you know, one tiny example. And it's, it, it takes so many different pieces at so many different levels to start yeah. to build a fuller picture of, of what anti-racist education might look like. Um, also, we're, you know, as you said, somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, mm -hmm. it prides itself on being radically liberal, but it's very, very white a lot of the time in, the, in mm -hmm. a lot of areas. And sure. um, the liberalism has led to a lot of colorblindness. Um, and 
so people can talk the talk sometimes, but we're not actually very good at implementing things. So, and there's the new um, Robin DiAngelo book on nice racism, <laughs> and she's a Seattleite. So, <laughs> so, so I didn't you know, I that. Think, okay. yeah, I think it's going to be a, a a book that we'll be using very shortly. Um, just because our Seattle nice attitudes are not actually helping us um, move the conversation forward and change the way we work. Yes, so. and and of course a lot of um, Asian American uh, bias too, because yeah. a lot you know large populations there. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, um, I think anything um, anything that can and does happen will come through a center for teaching and learning. And that's why it's such an interesting an important role. Um, and, and I appreciate your time so much. Is there, is there anything that didn't come up that you just would love to share? Um, maybe it's a project you've been working on or um, something that I can put into the show notes that people might wanna look at further or anything else that didn't um, get mentioned that you'd like to, to end off with today. <laughs> Good question. Um, well, we have we have a project coming up that we're going to be once it's gone through IRB, which hopefully will be next week. That'll be coming out, which is going to we're going to be looking at what integrity means for educational developers. Mm. Um, that's going to build on some work that we did on credibility as a developer. Yeah. Wow, that is pretty awesome. <laughs> integrity, and uh, we need more of it. <laughs> everywhere um so what do you what do you mean by that is well, it more of a whole a whole a holism of integrity or is it about um honor and in a way that's our question like okay when when developers are thinking about integrity what what does that mean to them and then how does that look um so interesting because we think it could go in different directions you know it'd be interesting to see Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, if you have a chance to come back to um, listen to any of the previous podcasts um, that are on um, on the site, um, there was one that was, I think the last, it'll be a two or so before this one. Um, I spoke with Tracy Addy. Um, she's at Lafayette um, and she's she has a really neat project where students are kind of trained to be observers um, to sort of maintain integrity of what's happening in, in classrooms and actually learn how to give feedback to the instructors, the faculty members, um, because it's really easy to think you have integrity until you have some kind of triangulation on whatever you thought you were <laughs> being, um, having integrity around. And that's, the, that's like third, the third leg that always seems to be missing. Um, uh, at least where I work, it's there's a lot of talk about things, but then it's like, have you actually asked students or faculty, you know, what they think about this? Because uh, you need that and to keep your integrity, keep your awareness high, for sure. Um, Deandra, anything else you wanted to add? I don't, I don't think so. Off the cuff, I would I would say I mean one of the things. David and I have been thinking about, researching, talking about for, for years are how we navigate these in-between spaces as developers where we're, you know, part faculty, part administrator, 
long-term, short-term, working with faculty from a variety of different disciplines who speak different languages. I mean, in the, in a sense, um, yes, yes. Sort of figuratively and the, um, thinking about how we navigate that and anytime is an interesting question. Thinking about how we've navigated that during a pandemic when we're being called on to do more work, reactive, not even responsively, but just reactively to try or, or, or quickly to help people prepare, but then how we sustain that. I mean, th those, those kinds of questions and how we sustain that with any kind of integrity that is also, while still remain incredible in our work when we're pulled in all these different directions, up and down and side to side. Um, there's one thing that we, we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about. Um, and that's one thing I'm, I'm curious to keep thinking about as we're, yeah, whatever through means, like when we're on the other side of this, what, what will be there? Um, what kind of space will we be navigating and operating within? Yeah, and taking advantage um, in a way of, the high level of activity gives you a lot of data to kind of process, um, yeah. you know, because we finally like swimming to the side of the pool and you just want to catch your breath for a minute before you start, you know, going across again for more laps. And um, it's it's a very interesting and challenging time. Um, and we're really just all the listeners, I'm sure are really grateful to for the work you've done for the field and continue to do. And even the two of you as um, long-term collaborators, you know, that in terms of mentoring that um, with whether it's the pod network or um, otherwise that you who are listening are part of this great community and to reach out, find people to just have conversations with um, throughout the year, um, especially when who knows what's happening with conferences. Um, it's You can't really sit in a hallway too well, even if you use a funky, cool, new type online conference tool. Um, it's different than, you know, really having a a good Seattle cup of coffee, you know, with someone. So um, thank you so much for your time. And um, we appreciate and have a lot to think about. So thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Thanks, Laura.